1: you're listening to the times red box politics podcast i'm patrick Maguire. in for matt chorley today we'll be asking what if margaret thatcher had fought on and fought to win in the 1990 tory leadership election that led to her downfall really interesting historical discussion with the tory peer and pollster robert haywood coming up but first it's time for the columnists
0: The Columnists
1: with Alibert Alice Thompson and Robert Crampton on yes. Times Radio Yes, it's time for Alice Thompson Morning, Alice Morning, Patrick And Robert Crampton Hello, Robert Hi, Patrick You require no introduction, Robert given we've been yakking on for the past uh, past five minutes yep. Let's talk about your column, Robert <laughs> You've written that AI can't replace certainly couldn't replace such scintillating <laughs> chat as this but, you know, AI, you say, won't be able to
2: replace Robert Crampton well, I hope it. I hope it won't. I think it might be. I was, the column was it wasn't entirely uh, uh, serious. Uh, saying that your might, output not entirely serious, Robert. Come on. Saying it might. Whilst it might re- replace my core functions of writing, my function of writing columns, it couldn't replace all the other uh, tasks that I uh, perform around the office. Kind of soft skill tasks of. Uh, What's the Robert Crampton offer to uh,
1: employers who uh, be nice to be You
2: know, nice to people. You know, gossip around about the football, <laughs> gossip about fashion, chat about unsubstantiated rumours, lies, slander. <laughs> about colleagues. Yeah, about colleagues. Uh, and generally, the glue that holds a workplace and a society together, I would argue. Uh, and uh, no chatbot is ever going to be able to do that. Uh, Alice, do you ever worry that you might be replaced
1: by
3: AI? Uh, yes, and though in some ways I quite like bits of AI. I think it would be quite useful if um, we didn't have to do all the maths and the uh, writing too much. We mm. could, like Robert, just swan around the office having fun <laughs> talking gossip, really.
2: But, you know, <laughs> yeah, that's that's that. what a way to live. What a way to live, The, the problem, problem is that, that although that is, a, that, uh, there's a kind of light-hearted element to this, which is kind of what I've been focusing on, uh, we then get the front page of the Times this morning saying even the, the people developing AI, including the, the guy who runs the company that developed chat, GBT, Begging to be regulated and saying it could end, it, kind of prophesying the end of the world. Uh, so it is a serious problem. But that's the problem, isn't it's a it? I, I mean, subject. I think
3: that you- you want after TikTok and Twitter and Facebook, they didn't have enough rules in place. So actually they weren't bad in themselves. It's just that Mm. they became much worse than they could have been because there were no rules put out for them. And I think that's the same with ChatGPT. We just need very strong rules around
1: Yeah, as you say, this on the front page this morning's Times, more than 350 of the world's most distinguished experts in artificial intelligence, including the creative ChatGPT, have warned of the possibility that the technology could lead to the extinction of humanity. Well, yeah, which, which is a is, big deal. Yeah, it's a pretty, it's <laughs> a pretty that, big deal. Given that we've all
2: seen Terminator Two.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, you know, uh, but the, I guess it's part of the problem here that we talk about this in terms of, you know, we evoke sort of sci-fi films. Yeah. It's quite difficult to get one's head around the idea that this is real
2: and a, yeah. quite a clear and present danger. Well, yeah, that is the problem. I mean, uh, if you're you're already 27, Patrick, and you don't. I'm, I'm sounding like you don't fully understand it. Well, I get, well, guess what it's like at 58, you know, which is sort of more like the average politician or person making a decision on the, these mm. things. We fundamentally don't understand it. I mean, I'm somebody who would have been quite happy for technology to have stopped... Kind of after Wikipedia, basically. Okay, so,
1: I thought you were about to say the full television. Chat. No,
2: no, 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 no. I'm, you know, I'm not that. I'm not that much of a luddite. I, you know, I like mobiles, like email, mm. uh, like texting, uh, like my, you know, elements of the smartphone. Certainly like Wikipedia. But when was that? Two thousand five, two thousand six. Mm. sort of YouTube around about the same time. Could have stopped there as far as I'm concerned. Uh, and I don't. And, and and my own knowledge of it kind of pretty much did. So I fundamentally don't understand this issue. Uh, and that, I think, is the problem worldwide. I mean, yeah. how's Joe Biden going to get his head around this?
1: <laughs> That's a very good question. Yeah.
2: <laughs> That's, do you think politicians
1: have even begun to think about the potential impacts on, for instance, the world of work, Alice?
3: Well, that's the problem. Is I think they're looking backwards, all these politicians, aren't they? They're all looking at what they're going to be doing about TikTok or porn or all the things that we've already got. They're not looking forward. And I think that that's going to be the issue. They need to throw it all forward, don't they?
1: Yeah, it's sort of the point at which a politician starts talking about something is the point at which it's become a it's a-, a massive, pervasive problem or issue.
2: Yeah, and one that's happening. I mean, the, the, the timescale is weeks. I mean, we were talking about this uh in editorial conferences in, in February in a completely different way than we're talking about it now. Mm. Uh, literally changing uh, week by week. So And our political processes and our politicians are really not geared up to do that. And I think these people, uh, these men and women, these 350 uh, people at the heart of it are, are to fair play to them. They've realized that. They're, they're saying that. They're not like the previous generation of, of tech entrepreneurs who just basically wanted to make money and pretended they were hippies but essentially just behave like old-fashioned ruthless capitalists. At least these people are, are kind of flagging up the dangers. Mm. But it's one of those things where the, once the genie is out of the bottle,
1: it's quite hard to then retrospectively say, you know, oh, we're all used to chat GBT now. Mm. Maybe, look, maybe maybe we won't mourn the loss of chat but once the technology is out there, it's often quite hard to undo these things. Well, we've managed to do it with
3: nuclear weapons. Yeah, I think weapons. at universities, didn't we? I mean, universities yeah. is the worst thing, and schools and and children and what they're going to do. And I think that's quite hard because they're all going to be using ChatGPT and you don't blame them. And actually, we've got to teach them how to use it properly rather than refuse to let them use it at all.
1: Yeah, it's interesting because because the technology currently isn't terribly sophisticated. I mean, my cousin's a teacher who's already had ChatGPT mm. essays submitted. And he says you can spot them now. Yeah. But it's not some... You, you know, you have to be looking quite hard.
2: Yeah. I mean, that... you know that could, be, I think, that would be uh, that's soluble, and it, and it will and, it, and and it will be a sideshow. I and mean, the problem is these vast interlinked, interlinked systems, mm. which we've already got, and we see what happens when they go down. And if they're run in, in, in totally artificially, uh, then that that could be catastrophic. Uh, Alice, before we lost you earlier, we were talking
1: about your column this morning about uh, care in the community and the police's approach to mental health, and uh, your Aunt Elizabeth.
3: Yeah, my aunt was um, bipolar and my uncle was schizophrenic and they met together actually um, when they were both being treated and they were some of the first they were the first experiments actually in care in the community they were given a house in Cambridge and they lived together but they they found it very difficult and they used to live off dog food sandwiches and um, and they were slightly sort of chaotic and when he died she became even more chaotic she used to grow vegetables on his grave and she was quite difficult with the neighbours and the police were constantly coming round. so my column is really about how you know the police do have to deal a lot with mental health issues, and how difficult it is for them, and how brilliant they are at it actually a lot of the time, um, and they're not given credit. There's so many issues where the police aren't good at, but they are doing a lot of this mental health work. You know, they're spending a million hours a year in A&E, with people with mental health difficulties, just queuing up for them to be seen. So it's about, really, mental health and the police and what we can do to help them out more.
1: Robert, do you think Mark Rowley,
2: the Met Commissioner, who said his officers aren't going to attend mental health mm. emergencies anymore, is right? No, I don't think you can say that, really. I think there's a whole... Uh, I can take, I take all the points that Alice made uh, in her column, but if there's a mental health emergency, the clue's in the name, as an emergency, then there's possibly the law is being broken or the law is about to be broken or someone is going to uh, uh, harm themselves or others, then the police have to attend. And there's a whole long list, uh, kind of official and unofficial, of crimes and misdemeanors that the police don't exist, don't, uh, don't uh, uh, assist at, uh, involve themselves with, and we shouldn't be adding to it. Uh, on the other hand, I think Alice is... Comp- it's obviously right that the police shouldn't be spending all their manpower uh, sitting in hospital waiting rooms. Uh, there obviously has to be some sort of triage system where the police are at the sharp end where there's a p- potential criminality and then it gets devolved to other people. problem with care in- if Care in the community is a great phrase, but if-, if there is no community, like as it doesn't seem to be there was with Alice's aunt and uncle, then there's no care. Is there? What sort of care were they receiving, Alice, or or were they supposed to be receiving in the community?
3: Well, they had a lot of family around, so we visited them a lot, but they can't be there 24 hours a day. And they also meant to have social care workers, but that's the problem, is they were just so up against it they would having they had so many people to deal with that yeah. they only really managed to come round once or twice a week and then yeah. they were often taken off their meds and, there you, and go. you know it's it's hard everyone does try and i think the neighbors did try but they became absolutely i'm sure they did
2: but if you've got if you didn't want if we don't want people incarcerated in great big victorian uh homes mm. which we now think is uh inhumane and it probably was then we have to provide the, the, the funding to, do, which is obviously going to be more expensive, to yeah, do it to be, do it in a dispersed way in the home. Because but, the obvious
1: question as well that's invited by Mott Rowley's decision, his operational decision, is, okay, if the police aren't going to do this, as you say, yeah, who is? who's going to do it? Yeah. And if those people don't exist, then why don't they exist? And yeah, that invites a much bigger question about the state of mental yeah. health pro- provision in this country. And yeah, Alice, would, Alice
2: was writing about Humberside, which is my neck of the woods, and that was quite interesting that they, they've got mind mind people involved. So... It, what was what was going on there alice
3: so i think i mean they've actually i think to a certain extent they have cracked it they've yeah. got this triage system where mind man the telephone so they've got um professionals working out what needed where and whether actually you need a mental health person or whether you need the police to go to a situation or whether actually it's neighbors yeah. and, and how did, and, and they they've saved a lot of police hours which is what you need Mm -hmm. you just need to free them up to do the really serious stuff as you say another problem is the prisons which is extraordinary so a lot of them are going Mm. into prison particularly women Women end up who um, there were seven women in two months who tried to commit suicide. who ended up in prison because there were no spare beds for them in the mental health system. That is appalling I mean they, mm. they should never have to end up in a prison situation
2: but as in, I mean we're all familiar with in, in, living where we do of, of somebody late at night causing a fuss often exacerbated by drugs or alcohol mm. but but fundamentally about mental illness and you know maybe maybe causing criminal damage or certainly so, antisocial behavior. Possible uh, violence against other people. The police just have to get involved in that, don't they? I mean, he they, they cannot say that. As from the end of August, we're not going to. We're going to say sorry, we're busy. If they can't do that if
1: there's an immediate risk to life, yeah. or as you say, a crime being and committed. Then it, but
2: then it has to be passed on to other people, so you don't get uh, police officers wasting wasting their time.
1: Now, for the most important story of the day, is Karki the new Black? Yeah. Robert Crampton thinks it so. when my fa- It is when
2: my fashion editor says it is. And, <laughs> there's,
1: and, a, there's a wonderful uh, picture of, of Robert Crampton in a pair of shades and army fatigues and a khaki t-shirt going the full Zelensky yeah. uh, in today's paper. Uh, fashion stylist and wardrobe designer, Krishnan Palmer uh, joins us now. Hi, Krishnan. Mm. Hello. <laughs> uh, is, uh, is khaki the new black then? Should we all be switching up our wardrobes? I see. You are you wearing so. khaki? Is that khaki, or is that dark green?
4: I am. I am indeed. I've got a little bit of khaki on in honour of this piece we're doing today.
1: It looks. Uh, look, it does look good. Your, your, <laughs> you know, what's your what's your snap take on Christian's
2: outfit, Robert? Oh, it's excellent. You look you're very stylish, mate. And I love the moustache. Oh, thank you. <laughs> love, <I know laughs> everything about it. Love it. earrings. Fantastic look. Uh, why Why is khaki in
1: vogue? Uh, I think people have just got used to now
4: it's become the new neutral, which is quite exciting. I mean, th- there's a real joy to wearing khaki because it pairs so well with loads of other colours, unlike other neutral tones like white um, and creams, which are quite, I mean, it's quite treacherous to wear them, especially in the summer months, because you don't know whether it's going to all of a sudden turn grey and you're going to get caught in a rainstorm. Um and it's also quite a warm tone, which is quite nice. Um, and it kind of partners well with a loads of different colours from, from denim to white to bright colours. Um, so I think it's 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 kind of always been a staple piece in the fashion industry. It's kind of like had a big makeover from being like quite an ugly colour to something that I think people really adore to wear. I
1: have to say, Rob, That's exactly I was, what I was going to say. I was going to say, <laughs> I, well, I'm disappointed that, you know, you look going the full Zelensky in the paper. It suits you, but you're wearing a... Light blue t-shirt today. Not uh, light
2: blue shirt and jeans, your yeah, uniform. Yeah, I, d- I didn't want to... I, I wouldn't... As I say in the piece, I wouldn't go out wearing the full lot. I'd wear one or other of those. but uh, and, I did, and, I, and I wore both for purposes of the photograph. But I, w- I would feel slightly self-conscious wearing that regularly. Because uh, it, looked, it looked like you were trying to be... You know, you were sort of military kind of wannabe or something. You what uh, military men call a Walter Mitty. <laughs> Walter Mitty, yeah. I mean, it's fine for Zelensky because his country is at war, <laughs> and he's getting he's getting drones sh- shot at him on a regular basis. Your road in East Lo- uh, in East London is yeah. not at war. No, it can not be yet. a bit can be a bit gritty, but it's not. But we're not. It's not being attacked by the Kremlin.
3: Do
1: you know any? Uh, do you own any car, Alice?
3: I'm wearing a khaki jacket now, actually. Oh, wow. And I've got some khaki dungarees, which I'm not sure if they count, but they were in discount. I think no one else wanted the colour, I have to say, from free people if anyone wants to go there.
1: Well, they, they will they will after this item, I'm sure. Uh, Christian, um, will. Um, uh, Robert writes in today's Times, dressing up as a soldier does not flatter a middle-aged man, just ask Captain Manoring. Um What do you say to people who, who, you know, what that sort of criticism that it looks like, uh, you know, you're playing at being a soldier?
4: I think, I mean, it, obviously it has military connotations, um, but and I think it it's such a versatile colour uh, and it's actually really unapologetically summery um, because you can team it with so many things. You can wear like your khaki pants with a crisp white shirt. It's going to look great. You could go full on khaki. Uh, just a khaki jacket over, over a cocktail dress is always such a good look. Um, I think it's kind of moved away from from that from it having those those military connotations even though obviously that was that is a big part of, of the look
2: of course when yeah i mean i think that's right because when we when i wore it as a kid it was all surplus so mm. it, was, it was it was actually military clothing and it looked it looked like it uh but now if it's uh, if it's coming out of uh off the high street and couture then it's not in the tailor then it's and, it's and it's not been hanging around some quartermaster's store for 20 years then it's obviously going to look better and uh let and, and and get away from the uh the the, the military look
1: yeah because i'm uh, i'm the uh the, one of the least fashionable person uh, people i know probably the least fashionable person i know but all my mates now wear cargo pants christian instead of jeans that's that's where the that's what the kids are wearing now
4: <laughs> yeah the, it, it's all come back around so I, obviously i remember it from from the old r&b days of, of the the 90s um so it's all yeah it's all come back around now but it's a much more kind of luxe approach so obviously we saw like bands like celine put it all over their catwalk and that kind of has filtered through into the high street so you you can't walk past a shop window these days without seeing like a really cool pair of cargo pants um and we've kind of got the big balloon shapes which were obviously synonymous with bands like like all saints and stuff like that through to kind of more tailored looks um that we've seen like People like news presenters wear um, as part of like a, a nice smart casual wardrobe.
1: That's a that's a recommendation for me. I think I'll uh, I'll bear that in mind. I'll bear that in mind for the week ahead. Alice Diora, uh, your kids are very cool. I I hear. Well, mainly from you. Do they wear Do they wear cargo pants and the like?
3: <laughs> they do actually i have to admit they do but they um i have actually done a piece of the times on me nicking their clothes uh because i do nick their clothes um because i feel that actually it's my turn now because they were constantly nicking my stuff they don't want any of my stuff i want all theirs really
2: they'll be after your khaki dungarees alice they will they, be,
3: they, w- no well actually i think that's one step too far they took yeah. actually i nick my daughter's dungarees she's never worn them again now she thinks that they're like mum.
1: That was Robert Crampton and Alice Thompson. Remember, you can read them both every week in The Times. Just get yourself a subscription.
3: Selling a little or a lot?
4: So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today.
0: This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.
1: You're listening to the Times Red Box Politics podcast, now it's time for this. Yes, today, as every day that I'm in Matt Chorley's chair, we're asking what if we'll explore. The political parallel universes we could have enjoyed or suffered had things just gone a little differently. Today we ask what if Margaret Thatcher had contested the second ballot of the 1990
2: Tory leadership election. Prime Minister. Mrs Thatcher, could I ask you to comment?
3: Good evening. Good evening,
2: just, gentlemen. Where's the microphone? It's here. This I'm is the
5: microphone. I'm very pleased that I got more than half the parliamentary party and disappointed that it's not quite enough to win on the first ballot. So I confirm it is my intention to let my name go forward for the second ballot.
2: Isn't the, isn't the vote against you, Mrs Thatcher, large enough for you to have to acknowledge that you Look, no longer have, enjoy the competence no, of the party?
5: I have got more than half the votes of the parliamentary party. It was not quite 15% above those of uh, Mr. Heseltine. I think it's about 14.6%. So it means we have to go for a second ballot. So I confirm that I shall let my name go forward. Well,
1: well that was the Iron Lady herself speaking to a scrum of reporters in Paris after the first ballot of the 1990 Tory leadership election. She, of course, did not fight on and fight to win. She withdrew and John Major ended up winning. But joining me now is a man who lived it the conservative peer and polling expert, uh, Lord Haywood, who at the time was playing old Robert Haywood, uh, still, Tory still MP. I'm
5: quite happy with Robert.
1: Uh, don't worry, <laughs> well, you know, we uh, we respect the uh, the peerage here at the Times, uh, Robert. Um, so you were there, you were MP for Kingswood at the time, but also what listeners may not know or they may have guessed from your uh, polling expertise, and I'm sort of holding history in my hands here, uh, you were running the numbers. At the time during the uh, during the leadership challenge, talk us through uh, what you were doing. I, you know, I hold it up to our camera here. Perhaps we can, uh, uh, you know, zoom in for and put this out on, on the socials later. I've got two lists of alphabetical uh, Commons members lists, and you know, you've gone through at the time painstakingly crossing out the names of Labour MPs. You know, first page A: Diane Abbott and Gerry Adams both crossed out, then Robert Adley the MP for Christchurch. Jonathan Aitken, MP for South Thanet. You've got a little M next to Jonathan Aitken. Then Alison Michael from... Uh, Michael Alison from Selby is little H. So you've you, at the time, you were running the numbers on this contest.
5: Yes, I'd done the numbers in, <coughs> excuse me, in 1989 when she was challenged by Sir Anthony Mayer and, in fact, had a conversation with the answer to your quiz in detail and ah. said what the figures would be and I got the figures spot on in 1989. And then in 1990, I did the same process. As you say, you've got the books there, which I, I marked. And I book, marked the books for the first ballot, and um, it was Michael Heseltine versus uh, Mrs. Thatcher. Mm. And then the question arose, which is your question today, was what if she'd run for the second ballot? Because as you showed in that clip, she was very close to actually achieving the numbers which would have uh, gone taken her beyond the required figure for a a majority in the party. And the most significant aspect was that I had a view that a certain number of MPs had voted for her on the first ballot out of respect for her, but would not do so on the second ballot.
1: So they didn't want to be seen to be voting to oust a Prime Minister themselves in the first ballot?
5: They could honour the commitment which they'd made to support her. But would not continue to do so if she didn't get uh, the required number on the first round.
1: So, you know, I'm looking at your list from the time, and these are names that would probably mean very little to listeners now. Uh, don't people remember them. Mr. Robert Banks from Harrogate was one such MP. You've got M slash H, which I believe means. Margaret in the first ballot, Hazeltine in the second?
5: It almost certainly. I, I'd have to be absolutely clear which I did. Um, but yes, I did them over a period of days. And Tim Renton, the chief whip, said, how many do you think uh, are in that well, honour the commitment category? And I said 20. And Tim Renton said, well, we got it as four And I said, well, it doesn't matter whether it's 20 or four, that takes her further away from victory. Mm. And I was fairly clear that I was actually pretty close to it why
1: why were you why were you doing this were you doing this because you love the numbers or were you doing were you put up to this by number 10 at the time or was it just a
5: mixture of loyalism and hobbyism oh very much the latter hobbyism i you know me well enough to know that i'm obsessed by numbers um when we didn't have opinion polls during covid one of the senior government ministers asked me about what i was doing in terms of looking at opinion polls <laughs> and i said well sadly i'm looking at the, at the death figures and the sickness figures in, on covid instead so yes yeah, status. So, um, writ large and, no, I'd, I'd done it very much for my own interest mm. and because I'd got it right in 1989, there was much more attention paid to me in terms of the figures in 1990. Uh, you know, let's broaden this out a little bit to talk about the politics. Uh, remind listeners, w-
1: w- one, why Michael Hazeltine challenged her when he did in
5: 1990. Um, There was a huge row in the Westland row. There Mm. were other things as well. And there was the poll tax. And there was a sense that... And there is a parallel, but a, a different parallel, if I can say that, Between Mrs Thatcher having been re-elected in 87 and Boris Johnson in 2019, Mm. took the nation with them in a certain way, up to a certain point, but had lost the pull, which they had had previously, and the poll tax and the like. And Michael Heseltine had stormed out of government over Westland and... Uh, he felt obliged to challenge her. It was a case of put up or shut up. The previous year, Anthony Mayer had been the stalking horse, which he'd been uh, described as. But it really was a case for Michael Heseltine. He had to fight or not, and mm. he chose to run against her. And part of
1: the reason Michael Heseltine didn't win, uh, you know, or you know, didn't win outright in the first ballot and then did, went, on, didn't, went on not to win, uh, was because, as Alan Clarke records very well in his diaries, and you faithfully recorded uh, him with an M here, Clark Mr, yep. Clark, Mr. Alan Plymouth Sutton, um, was because he rubbed colleagues up the wrong way.
5: He did. He wasn't reliable, regarded as reliable. He was regarded as temperamental. Mm. And therefore, although people could see the failings of Mrs Thatcher and the fact that she was getting ever more remote from the public at large, the sense was there had to be an alternative and John Major proved to be that alternative. Uh, were you surprised when you were running these numbers at the extent of
1: disenchantment with Mrs Thatcher? Because, you know, I'm thinking back to those Clark diaries when he, you know, records his exasperation as a devout, devout and devoted follower of Mrs Thatcher, you know, going into Peter Morrison's office and he's got his feet up having a snooze. Uh, were you surprised that, one, they weren't fighting particularly hard, did they think they were going to win? And two you know, that actually she couldn't win out right on the first bubble. No,
5: I wasn't surprised. It, it had developed over time. And in the tea room, you're in conversation with other people. Mm. In one of the books about that period, it says that uh, I recalled not what MP said over the previous seven weeks but over the previous seven years Uh, and one MP said, is it true that you recall what people say over seven years and I said yes if I regard it as significant and to which his response was, I'm never going to speak to you again (laughs) so uh, it was over a period of time I'd been developing that own sense and I felt it myself, I voted for Mrs Thatcher in 1989 but on the first ballot I actually abstained uh, in 1990 Mm. Uh, but I, I voted quite happily and was involved in the numbers for John Major uh, on the second ballot.
1: So do you think, say Mrs Thatcher does choose to fight the second ballot, is it
5: a pretty humiliating end for her? That was my big fear, that um, somebody for whom she had delivered my victory, no Mm. question about it, in 1983 and 1987, and... um, she would have been utterly humiliated because the numbers would have gone down by quite, as far as I was concerned, quite marked numbers, whether it was 15 or 20 or so. Um, She would have been humiliated and um, she would have borne that very badly. She bore the defeat very badly. Politics is about victories and defeats. But, um, and I I, I recall it very sadly because you played that clip. I, I watched Paris... On the night, Mm. the next day, I had to go and meet a friend of mine from the United States who was visiting the United United Kingdom for his first time ever. And I was at Heathrow when she actually announced that she wasn't standing. And I was trying to call people to find out what... I I was pretty clear that she was going to stand down. And nobody I rang was available. All their telephone lines were engaged. Wow. And the net result was... I knew she had announced publicly because i guessed that that was what was going to happen. And in fact, as we... The tube came in from Heathrow at Austerley, just before Osterley, the driver actually announced... That Mrs. On the, that- the tannoy, wow. On the tannoy, on the tube, that Mrs Thatcher had
1: stood down. So unthinkable was that prospect. Do you think Michael Heseltine wins if she's in the second ballot or does it shake down for John Major in the end, in any case? I...
5: I'm really not sure whether she would have won or whether Heseltine would have won. I think... Uh, Michael Heseltine would have stood a very, very strong chance. Um, but that's a question I've asked myself uh, And because I didn't have to do the numbers, I didn't do them. Uh, and therefore, there's not a third book with Sadly. with the run of Michael Heseltine versus Margaret Thatcher because it wasn't needed because if history took a different course.
1: Well, Robert, I hope you're donating these to the National Archives or a similar institution because I, that is such amazing... First hand history there, the original tallies of who was voting for who in the 1990 Tory leadership election. Thanks for listening. I'm Patrick McGuire, Informat Chorley all week, and remember to like, share, subscribe and follow wherever you get your podcast from.
0: This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at Lutonrising.org.uk.